Would you turn again to the letter of 1 Peter? For those of you who are joining us as a guest today, we have been in a study since our church launched in August of last year in the letter of 1 Peter. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 7 to provide just a little bit of context. Please consider, as I read, that these are the words of God. Likewise, or in the same way, wives, be subject or submit to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your pure conduct with fear. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Father, we just come before you this morning once more to ask for your blessings on this time. Apart from your spirit, I can do nothing. And apart from your spirit, your people will hear nothing. So please be with us now. Let your Holy Spirit move freely in this place so that we might hear and understand and be enabled to obey your words. It is in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, it is good to be back with you this morning after some time away. I want to thank both Daniel Haas and Ed Rosen for preaching over the last two weeks. Daniel for continuing with our text in 1 Peter and Ed for covering for me during my time of illness on a message that uh, I'm sure is always needed in our church, a message uh, about forgiveness. A, a church always needs a steady diet of hearing about and remembering what it means to forgive. So I'm thankful to both Daniel and Ed for their work over the last two weeks. Well, if you can remember two weeks ago when Daniel preached to us from verses 5 and 6 of this passage in 1 Peter, he made mention of a phenomena that many of you have admitted to me you've experienced before. You might call it the, uh, the Father's Day whiplash. Um, you know how mothers are celebrated and encouraged and gifted every year from the pulpit on Mother's Day. And then when Father's Day rolls around, well, buckaroo, it's time for your yearly beatdown. 
Men have become so accustomed to this that they are on red alert every third Sunday in June. They walk into church that morning, kind of like the Rebel Alliance from Star Wars. You know, when they come out of hyperspace, they always come out with um, shields up, right? Well, brothers, may it not be so at Christ the King. For the last three weeks, our sisters have heard messages from 1 Peter that directly challenge everything they hear about femininity since they were probably born. They didn't get a book on why mothers matter as we walk through these verses on their responsibilities as wives. They didn't get a Mary Kay party and they didn't get a pat on the back. They were preached to from the Word of God what the Word of God says. And you know what I love about this? is that our sisters received it gladly. They were excited to hear from the Word of God what their duties are as women and wives and mothers. For three straight weeks, by the way, they listened to this. Today, brothers, Peter is speaking to our role in the home and particularly how we treat our wives. Now, I'm not going to shout at you this morning, and I'm not going to ask you things like, who the do you think you are? Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Or anything like that. But I want to encourage you, brothers, be ready to receive from God's word today what he has for you. Be vulnerable and open to correction. Humble yourself. God really cares about the way that a husband treats his wife. He really cares really cares. Don't hear me today taking back all the stuff that we've said to the ladies about submission and modesty and the way that they should respect their husbands. I'm not giving with one hand and then taking back this week with the other. Don't hear me saying you're going to treat your wife so well that she will never have to submit to you. That's not at all what I'm going to say. We will deal with that aspect of the way people consider submission in the very first part of this verse today. But you do, brothers, have some serious things to consider with how you live with your wife in an understanding and righteous way. So let's look at today's text together. You see, in the text, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers might not be hindered. Now, I've told you before that good study of God's word begins by asking good questions of the text of the word of God. I think a question presents itself to us with the very first word that we see in verse 7. Likewise. Likewise. So far we have heard in chapter 2 that citizens are to submit to their government, that household slaves are to submit to their masters, and that wives are to submit to their husbands. And now Peter says, likewise, husbands. A question should arise in your mind. So does this mean that husbands are in some way to submit to their wives? Many people today use this passage in exactly this way. They say things like, since the woman is the weaker vessel, the husband should give up antiquated ideas of the patriarchy, which 
by the way, only means that he is by nature a leader and his role in the home is leader. And they continue by saying that the wife and the husband, since they're co-heirs, should reign together. Since they're co-heirs and she is weak, he has to be careful not to hurt her. What if the world thought that he was abusing his wife? Well, that would be bad for the Christian cause anyway. This kind of argumentation is worldly, it is foolish, and I would say, if I may, that it is demonic in nature. Feigning equality in that argument that I just gave you, who was put first? The woman was. She is painted as a victim because of the way that God made her, which, by the way, God made her a weaker vessel, his choice. We'll get into what that means later. The God-ordained rule of the Father, which we've outlined in the Scriptures the last several weeks, is vilified. Egalitarianism, they're both completely equal in the sight of God, not just in who they are as human beings before God, but also in their natures and roles, which the Bible does not teach. And the world is put forth as the judge of Christian behavior. The world is put forth as the judge of Christian behavior. Beloved, I know we go over and over this at Christ the King, but the church has worked so hard for years to get the world to like them. Now, any church that stands firm on clear biblical principles for husbands and wives and what God's Word says is deemed to be a cult. It is. We um, tossing around ideas for the ladies' podcast that some of the girls are involved in. And one of the ideas that was tossed out for a podcast idea was, if the world doesn't call your church a cult, it's probably not a biblical church. Now, I know that sounds a little extreme, and you got to hear the message underneath there, but think about it. A man leading his home, a woman submitting joyfully to her husband out of reverence for Christ. What do people consider that to be today? Well, that's cultish. That's wrong. Oh, those are antiquated ideas. That'll, that's bad for the cause, right? All of these worldly ideas. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we have to reject this, even if it makes us, in the world's eyes, look old, antiquated, or even evil. Jesus promised us that we would be slandered for the sake of His name. Now, I want you to notice this. This word, likewise, cannot mean whatever it means that husbands must submit to wives. It cannot. Nowhere in the Bible are husbands commanded explicitly to submit to their wives. They are commanded to love them in Ephesians 5. They are to understand and honor them here in 1 Peter uh, 3 verse 7. They are to bear children with them, Genesis 1.27, and yes, that is still a command. They are to provide for and protect them, 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. They're to regularly find se sexual satisfaction from them, Proverbs 5.19. Yes, that is also still a command. But they are not commanded to submit to them. Now somebody might ask the question, doesn't Paul say in Ephesians 5 that we're supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? And I would say, yes, yes, Ephesians 5 does say that. But 
to say we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and therefore husbands should submit to their wives is an oversimplified reading of that text. Read broadly, if you read submit to one another, as Paul's saying you owe one another deference, you should do good to one another, you should show one another honor, and that's all you mean by it, then you might say we're okay. Calvin understands it in this way. God has bound us so strongly to each other that no man ought to endeavor to avoid subjection. And where love reigns, mutual services will be rendered. I do not accept even kings and governors whose very authority is held for the service of the community. It is highly proper that all should be exhorted to be subject to each other in their turn. Now, I'm going to disagree with my brother John Calvin on this because reading submission broadly doesn't read into it what the text explicitly says to individuals who are called to submit. For example, BDAG, which is a very common uh, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, defines the word hupotasso as subjecting oneself to, being subjected or subordinated to, and obeying. And they find that from the Greek context of how the word is used in both the New Testament and in the Septuagint, the Old Testament, written in Greek. So, what we must say, beloved, is that Paul can't mean in Ephesians 5, and we'll look here at 1 Peter 3 verse 7 as well. He can't mean that husbands are to obey their wives. Because he repeats the same command Paul does in Ephesians 5 to children and to slaves. Children, submit to or obey your parents. Slaves, obey or submit to your earthly masters. Parents are to submit to their children out of reverence for Christ, which means parents should obey their children out of reverence for Christ. He can't mean that. Slaves, you submit to your masters. And masters, since you all are Christians, y'all submit to your slaves too, and you make sure to obey your slaves. He can't mean that. It's ludicrous. What Paul and Peter are saying is to those whom God calls to a submission of obedience, wives, children, slaves, citizens, we've talked about that in 1 Peter, they must submit and obey. They must do it. And to those whom God calls to authority, masters, governors, fathers, they are to exercise that submission wisely. And I think there's a better explanation of what Peter is using the term likewise for here in 1 Peter. Since chapter 2, verse 12, we have been talking about everyone's godly conduct. Let your godly conduct be beautiful, excellent, praiseworthy among the Gentiles. So what does that conduct look like? Well, a citizen should submit. And a slave should submit. And a wife should submit. Likewise, husbands. Well, what's our conduct? Do we submit to? No. You live with your wives in an understanding way. That's what your godly conduct looks like. It would be absurd if we were to put this in modern terms to think that the president of the United States is not a public servant, but instead he's a ruler who gets to command without regard for his people. Actually, that sounds like our current situation. 
But it would be equally absurd for the church of Jesus Christ as citizens to think that the president should serve us as a citizen and not a leader. The office of president is service, but as a leader, he leads. That's his jurisdiction. That is where he reigns. And so, church, we must understand the categories that the Bible is laying out for us here in all of these areas as we've been talking about submission for some time and now talking about the husband's role to lead well in his home. We must, he commands. Peter says, the husbands must live with or dwell with their wives according to knowledge. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by wives having a husband who lives with them according to the Greek word gnosis or knowledge? Let's start by talking about what he doesn't mean. What he doesn't mean is that husbands should not live with their wives according to their emotions. Husbands should not live with their wives according to emotion. What typifies masculinity is not emotion. This is to say that men are not emotional, which is as much to say as that they should not be governed internally and thereby externally according to their emotions. When I uh, taught abstinence in the public school system, we would first of all teach the science side of abstinence education on the first day. And then the second day we'd teach about boys and girls. We'd teach about dating relationships and things like that and talk about how to avoid um, inappropriate relations, him who has ears to hear, um, outside of marriage. we talk about that in the class. And I'd always ask a question, every abstinence class I ever taught, I always ask a question. How are guys and girls different? Okay? And so usually if I didn't answer it, somebody would raise their hand and say, well, girls are like this, boys are like this. Okay? And if nobody would ask the question, I would always ask, so who is more emotional, the boys or the girls? The boys would always jump right to it. Girls are way more emotional, which it never failed in every single abstinence class I ever taught. I always have that one girl, she's just a little bit on edge. Guys would say, girls are way more emotional. She'd be like, no, we're not. <laughs> okay, case in point. The, the, the reason I bring this up is because they never said in the class that it was the boys who were more emotional. Like, it's just written on their hearts. Guys understand it's not supposed to be that way. As a leader, he doesn't lead by emotion. Now, women having that emotional side to them is a beautiful and wonderful thing. It is a part of their created makeup that God delights in. But a man cannot be ruled by that. He cannot run a home that way. Men who live with their wives according to their emotions are men who have been trained that and or they're convinced that the best way to understand her is to act like her. These are soft, effeminate, often white knights who live for their damsel in distress. God did not design men to lead in any way by emotion or by their feelings. From this week's Bible reading, we have these words. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land that they had scouted, the people who were scouting out the promised land. They said, the land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. 
We even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim to ourselves. Listen to this, church. We seemed like grasshoppers. And we must have seemed the same way to them. We can't do what God says, to summarize. It just feels like the task is too big. Our enemies seem too great for us. What did Caleb and Joshua say? Um, God told us we could do it. Y'all ready? Let's go. That's how men lead. That's how men lead. Men don't lead by, oh, it just doesn't seem like I can do this. I don't know that I could speak that way to my wife and tell her that what she just said to my children was wrong. It might hurt her feelings. Men cannot lead that way. They'll ruin their home. They'll ruin their families. They'll ruin their children. Men who lead by emotion are soft, weak, passive, aggressive followers. They're impotent. They're receivers rather than leaders and givers. They're carried about by every wind of doctrine rather than holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Now at our best, men should be logical, rational, understanding, patient, strong, resilient, engaging in argumentation patiently, offering factual refutation, and if I may so, less prone to being offended by how the conversation goes. And this all glorifies God. God is opposed to men who try and lead according to their emotions. Now, if Peter's going to say we're going to live with our wives in an understanding way, brothers, we cannot lead by emotion. We also, number two, we cannot lead according to strength. We cannot lead according to strength. What do you mean by that? God does not permit men to live with their wives as if her strength were equal to his. These are the men who enjoy intimacy with their wives and when they leave the bedroom, they treat their wife like she has the same endurance, agility, fortitude, and competency that he has. I am not saying that women are not capable of doing things that require great strength. I have seen my wife open more than one jar. But as we don't want men to act like women, brothers, we certainly should not expect our women to act like men. This is just feminism in the opposite direction. And I actually had to look this up, but there actually is such a thing. It's called masculism. We've never heard of it, but there it is. People who prefer men over women, masculism. I have seen a wife and a marriage be destroyed because a husband expects of her things that he should only expect from a man. Brothers, you cannot lead this way. I've shared this before, but if you've ever seen one of those contests or those uh, uh, presentations where these like the world's strongest men, you know, guys who can take crowbars and take a whoopee cushion and blow it all the way up. You know, if the whoopee cushion were to actually come back in and go into their lungs, it would explode their lungs. I mean, these guys are tough dudes, right? And yet that man who's given a jar to open and uses all of his strength to open it, what's going to happen? He's going to shatter the jar. He's going to cut his hand open and cause more harm than good, right? The right amount of strength is what is needed. And God gave men the exact right amount of strength for their task. And he gave women the exact right amount of strength for their task. We call them to a higher standard than the world calls them to, but we're not calling them to become men. 
We're not living with them according to our measure of strength. Finally, we are not to live with our wives, brothers, according to our will. Now, what do you mean by that, Chris? God did not call men to dwell with their wives according to their will. Think about this for a minute. A man is a leader. He is the head of the home. He is the actual authority. His words should carry weight, and his wife should follow his words to the best of her ability. That being said, Peter's command to husbands does not include a home where he's a dictator or a tyrant whose preferences are what guide his leadership. If the emotional man lives with his wife as though there are two wives in a marriage and the macho man lives with his wife as though there are two husbands in a marriage, then the self-willed man lives with his wife as if he's married to himself. Not pleasing to God. Not pleasing to God. Think of the example of Nabal from the Old Testament. You remember the story of Nabal who, when David's men came to receive a gift from him as they had been surrounding his flock and protecting his flock and um, caring for themselves while they were on the run from Saul. And Nabal spoke harshly to them. The Bible records it this way in 1 Samuel 25. Then David's young men came and spoke to Nabal according to all the words that David had spoke to them. And then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I don't know? Now, this probably doesn't fall with the same kind of weight on us as it does to the ancient readers who would have understood this. In our day and in a world where we're very particular about private property and making sure that you don't take advantage of someone's private property, come into the context of a world that was an honor-shame culture. In an honor-shame culture, the highest shame you could bring on yourself was not being hospitable. Now, this went too far many, many times in the scripture as Abraham's trying to use his wife as a bodyguard to make sure he doesn't get in trouble with Pharaoh and others. And, and, and when um, uh, Lot uses his daughters as a potential way to be hospitable to these angels who have come into their home, and we go, that's crazy, you could never do that. Okay, yes, sinful, wrong, but honor, shame was everything in their culture. So for Nabal to say, I don't care, my house, my rules, he's a self-willed man. And it was disgusting, and that's why David said, all right, every man, get your sword ready. We're going to go take this man out. And of course, you know that Nabal's wife saved the day in the end. This is not to say that a husband cannot make decisions apart from his wife. There are going to be moments when this is necessary and even right. As I always say, please avoid the extremes. We've heard people who say, I don't do anything without talking to my wife. Now, I know what they mean by that, but that, you carry that all the way to the extreme. A man is going to have to make decisions apart from his wife from, from time to time. But we've all heard the stereotype 
of get in the kitchen and make me a sandwich. You don't make decisions. All you do in this house is serve, go away, do your job, let me run things. We can't lead that way, brothers. We cannot lead her that way. As Daniel said last week, it is not the job of the sisters of this church, of the wives of this church, to judge whether or not her husband has pure motives and then she decides, okay, I'll obey him because I think that his motives are pure. Sisters, you can't do that. Brothers, I'm addressing you this morning about how you're to appropriately do that in your home. God calls you to quietly and joyfully lead your home. He calls your wife to quietly and joyfully submit to your leadership regardless of how she perceives your intentions. So what does Peter say? He says, live with your wives according to knowledge. According to knowledge. What does this mean? I think he means at least two things. First, can I ask the children a question? Children, what does Proverbs say about where knowledge begins? Where does knowledge begin? Does anybody know? Any child? With the fear of the Lord. That's right, buddy. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A man who fears God begins the task of living his, with his wife in the right way, the right way. He begins correctly. There is no way for him to lead his home pleasing God apart from the fear of God. Men, I ask you this question this morning. Do you fear God? Is your life and your leadership and your directions and your decisions, I will say it this way, completely influenced by your reverence and regard for the God to whom you will one day give account? Listen to what G.K. Chesterton said. This was back in probably the early 1900s, 1910 or so. Chesterton said, We fear men so much because we fear God so little. But one fear cures another. When a man's terror scares you, turn your attention to the wrath of God. Brothers, I ask you this question. Have you considered the wrath of God lately? Have you here today who, sensing that you are in Christ considered the wrath of God? Have you considered all that wrath that would be poured out on you but for your sake was poured out on Christ? Does a God who is that beyond us, as I prayed in the pastoral prayer, that holy, that separate from us, does that God arrest your attention, command your fear and your respect? If not, I would ask you to consider, have you really come to Christ? Have you really made Christ everything? Is Yahweh your fear? Is He your dread? We know that there is no fear and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But at the same time that we don't fear God because the wrath has been completely put on Christ, the scriptures still command us to fear God, to honor Him, to reverence Him. I would encourage anyone in here, not just the men, the women and the children, if you do not fear God, you should. You should. 
Because one day, every one of us will stand before that judgment seat and we will give an account for even the foolish words that we speak, even the idle words that come out of our mouth that maybe nobody heard. And Jesus, standing next to the Father, will ask for a reckoning for even those things. This ought to bring fear and reverence into our hearts. And if you do not know God, if you have not repented, today is the day of salvation. You can give your life to Christ, admitting to Him that you are a sinner, that you hate Him and don't fear Him. But now, knowing that there is no hope for you, you placed all of your trust in Christ. You place all of your trust and hope on Christ. If you do this, beloved, you will find Christ to be a perfect Savior. There is no other. He is the only one. Brothers, the knowledge that you need to love your wife begins with the fear of God. But secondly, in order to love your wife according to knowledge, you need the Word of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, words that are familiar to all of us, all Scripture, by the way, he said all Scripture, speaking of the Old Testament in those days, but we know that all Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Brothers, I say this to you. Taking good care of your lady is a good work. And to equip yourself for that, you need the Word of God. You need the Word of God. Let me ask you this question. And any of you should be willing to admit this to your other brothers here, if asked on the spot. Brothers, how dedicated are you to the Word of God? How often are you reading or listening to it? What is your level of commitment to memorizing the Word of God? How often does it make its way into your conversations with other men? or when caring for your wife or your children. Jesus warned us not to call Him Lord and in turn disobey His commands. As we've been reading from Psalm 119, you see the psalmist dedicated to the Word of God. Dedicated to the Word of God. Jesus told us that we cannot do anything apart from Him. And as we see this later in chapter 3, he does punish his children for their disobedience. Matthew Henry said of this verse, verse 7, that we're discussing this morning, Dwelling with the wife according to knowledge means not according to lust as brutes, nor according to passion as devils, but according to knowledge as wise and sober men who know the word of God and their own duty. Brothers, let me encourage you. If you're not in the Word of God, get in the Word of God. If you fear God and you spend time in His Word, you are going to, in increasing and ever-increasing ways, learn how to live with your wife according to knowledge. Now, Peter gives us a specific piece of knowledge that we should understand when dwelling with our wife according to knowledge. He calls her the weaker vessel. Peter informs the husbands that their wives are a weaker vessel. 
In what way or ways is she weaker? First, and I think we'd all agree, that she is weaker by nature, namely physically weaker. Peter doesn't use the common term for wife, which would be gunai. Instead, he uses a word that denotes femininity or that which belongs to the female sex. Coupled with the term vessel, you can see that her frame is a major part of this equation. Her physical body is a major part of this equation. Not only does the Bible confirm again and again that women are physically weaker, but the world is doing its lopsided best to undermine all of the differences between men and women. They say things like, well, how are men and women different? Well, men have more hair on their bodies. They have a bigger Adam's apple. They have different reproductive organs, and so on and so on. These are all things that you can say without upsetting the egalitarian gods. But after some digging, I found some athletic training sites that give a little bit of a better idea of the differences, physically speaking, between men and women. Men average, on average, six inches more height than women and roughly 20 more pounds than women. Women are more prone to injury by about 11% while having an average of 10% more body fat. I'm just reading statistics, ladies. It's just right here. Men's hearts are 25% larger. They have 30% more lung capacity. They're about 50% more upper body strength and 30% more leg strength. Their grip strength, on average, is over 50 pounds stronger than the ladies. And in order to support all of his weight, they have stronger bones, both longer and stronger. This is why we should not be surprised when we read things in the Bible, like the account of David's son Amnon raping his sister-in-law Tamar. Then she, that is Tamar, brought cakes near to Amnon to eat. But he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. And after she tried to persuade him, to stop, he was not willing to listen to her voice. Now he was stronger than she, and so he violated her, and he lay with her. If any man in this room has an ounce of love for God in his heart, that story right there ought to arrest your soul. You are far stronger than your wife. What kind of knowledge do you need to understand how to live with her the right way? you are far more powerful. You possess the strength to abuse your wife to that extent or, as we've all heard, at times greater extents. You can't live with a weaker vessel according to your strength or according to your emotions or according to your self-will. She must be honored as the co-heir that she is, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But secondly, how is she weaker? In what way is she weaker? Some people might be upset with this, but there is a sense in which Scripture speaks of a woman's weakness of constitution as compared to the men. God designed women to be led. They are, by His wonderful design, to be led by godly men. Satan exploited this before the fall when he deceived Eve. 
Paul records in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell in to trespass. Ladies, remember at this point, that was pre-fall. She hadn't sinned yet. Why did he go to her? Because she was made, created by God to be led. Satan exploited that. Where was Adam? Blame falls to him. But she fell because she doesn't have the same constitution that he has. Brothers, you know that wolves prey on the weakest members of a flock. You have been given to your wife as a provider and protector of her in order that she might be the fertile garden that God designed her to be in your home. Psalm 128, verses 1 through 3. How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in His ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands, how blessed will you be and how well will it be for you. Your wife shall be a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of your house. We are protecting her physically. We're also protecting her from the deception to which she is more prone. But lastly, I want to underscore something about a woman being a weaker vessel. And this isn't necessarily a way that women are weaker than men, but to what extent? The weakness of a woman is a comparative weakness. It is not absolute weakness. God knew that men would need helpers who are meat for them. He did not give them delicate and frail, but beautiful, household floral arrangers. That was not what Adam needed. He knew that Adam would need a different kind of strength to complement his in taking dominion of the whole earth. I've uh, mentioned multiple times um, a pastor and an author who's been a blessing to me recently, Michael Foster, um, in his book, uh, How uh, It's Good to Be a Man, um, he writes alongside of another man from New Zealand named Non Tennant. And I listened to a podcast where uh, Non, with his wife, uh, were talking a little bit about these differences between men and women. And Mrs. Tennant said this, Men are significantly stronger than women, but it is to be understood as strong and stronger, not strong and weak. Biblical women weren't weak. Adam was a gardener. So what good would a frail, delicate, nervous woman have been to him? Biblical women were tough. They were shepherdesses. They walked miles and miles through the desert. They carried huge jugs of water. Sisters, whatever you take away from today's sermon, don't walk away feeling like you're a little brittle trophy meant to delicately pour your husband's tea. That's not what God created you for. It may be part of it, but it's not all that he created you for. Your strengths, ladies, are real and exactly what your husband needs to fulfill, God, to fulfill God's mission for you both. And I encourage all the sisters in here, use your strengths. But in addition, Peter says that she is the weaker vessel. Isn't it interesting that he uses that terminology? So you might look at it as strong, stronger. You might also look at it as weak and weaker, right? What does it say about her husband? That he too is just a human being. He's a man. He's weak. All flesh is like grass, Peter said in chapter 1 of this letter. And all its glory like the flower of a grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so men are to live with their husbands 
according to knowledge, the fear of the Lord, according to the word of God, understanding that they are a weaker vessel and treating her as such. I said something funny. Sorry. Husbands. Thank you. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and they are to honor their wives as co-heirs. Peter's command to live with a wife according to knowledge is followed by two persuasions from the apostle, one positive and the other negative. Let's look at the positive argument first. Wives are co-heirs in the Christian's eschatological or end times hope, and so we should show them that level of honor. What does it mean that she is a co-heir with her husband? Ladies, men, women and men in the kingdom of God are just as much children of God as Jesus Christ. Women and men in the kingdom of God are just as much children of God as Jesus Christ. From Romans 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Today, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, you have the Spirit of Almighty God living in you who testifies to you that you are a child of God and will inherit with Jesus everlasting life and all its rewards. That is what is meant by Peter's phrase, the grace of life. By God's created design, women may be weaker vessels, but they are by no means to receive less than the men in the age to come. We do not believe that heaven will be egalitarian. That means that we will all have some androgynous sexuality. We'll no longer be men or women, but we'll all be kind of these amorphous beings. No, in heaven I will be a man. In heaven my wife will be a woman. We will retain that part of our humanity. And it's beautiful and wonderful and God's design. We will also act perfectly according to our natures in heaven without sin. But all of God's children will inherit eternal life and the blessings therein. And so since she is a co-heir, the husbands on this earth are to show them honor, show their wives honor. Since Christian women are to inherit along with Christian men eternal life and its blessings, Peter calls husbands to show honor to their wives right now on this earth. How are Christian husbands to do this? Brothers, let me start by encouraging you at the lunch table today to talk about this topic with your brothers over lunch and to consider the ways in which you honor or want to honor your wives in your home. Direct application right after the service over the lunch hour. You can discuss, hey brothers, how do you honor your wives? Let me share with you some of the ways that I honor my wife. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Let me give you three ways that a husband can honor his wife. And these are all taken from Ephesians 5. Number one, you should lead her. You should lead her. Men, you have been commanded by God through the Apostle Paul as the head of your wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Which means, at least, 
you should lead her. I've mentioned the story from an old TV show called Band of Brothers. It's a World War II drama where there were men in easy company trying to make their way across Europe to fight the Germans. And they would get different leaders at different times as men were killed or men transferred out of a troop. And one of their leaders was considered by the men to be the worst leader they had gotten. The narrator records this. He says that our leader wasn't a bad leader because he made poor decisions. He was a bad leader because he made no decisions. Indecision is cowardice. But I would go even further, brothers. Poor decision-making in your home is insulting to your wife and to God. I'm not saying you're not going to make poor decisions. You will. You will. Maybe on a daily basis. But you should always be striving to be a leader and the best decision-maker you can be. And remember, brothers, abdication is of the evil one. Let me call you to the highest standard. Strive to make only the best decisions in your homes. In what ways, Chris? Here's some ways that you can honor your wife in your home by leading her. First, you should read the Bible with her. Second, you should pray daily with her, perhaps at the end of your bed. You should also consider going through books with her, encouraging her with good literature. You should plan a family vacation for her. You should encourage her in her gifts. Speak clearly to her about your expectations for the kids, for bedtimes, for date nights, for finances, for home projects or other kinds of projects, for intimacy, and I would encourage you brothers to be the one who initiates it, to don't talk down to her in front of the children, to be the one to have the hard conversations with family or neighbors instead of asking her to be the one to do it, and to let her have jurisdiction over areas of the home where she is gifted, and then don't micromanage her. Mr. Live with your wife in an emotional way. You can be set free today by leading well in your home, and this honors your wife. Secondly, from Ephesians 5, Paul says to learn her. He says, love your wife as your own body, which is the golden rule essentially applied to marriage. Remember, though, that this has a learning curve. If your wife is experiencing, brothers, a phenomena common to women, which comes around about every 28 days, asking yourself, now how would I want somebody to treat me? Well, you're probably lacking some information, right? This comes with a learning curve. You need knowledge, and the knowledge of a woman's frame and emotions and aches and frustrations will inform you how to sympathize with her. So, Chris... How do I learn her? How do I honor her? By learning her. I would say principally by listening to her and discerning her needs physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. No, you can't take everything that she says to the bank, but husbands who want to honor their wives will do well to listen and think on and act according to what they glean from their wives. My wife Tammy says, if you know your wife well, you will also know your household well. If you give her jurisdiction over the kitchen, then put things where she asked them to be put, 
Why? Because you gave her jurisdiction over that to care for that portion of your house. No, I'm going to be a jerk and I'm going to put the egg mixer over here, right? That doesn't help your household. You're cutting the limb that you're sitting on out from underneath you. For all of you guys who would like to lead your wife like she's a man according to your own strength, learning more about your wife will settle you down. It will help you. Finally, Paul says, and a way that you can honor your wife from Ephesians 5 is to love her. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love his bride? Well, he knew her weaknesses and the need that she had, and he sacrificed for her in order to help her. Full stop. Jesus did not give up his role as her leader and authority in order to sacrifice her, sacrifice for her. You hear this, you know, servant leadership all of the time, and that ends up basically becoming servanthood rather than leadership. Jesus did serve the bride, and he served her principally as a leader. Husbands need to lead their wives, as I've already mentioned, but they can also serve them and make sacrifice for them. The church didn't make Christ a simp, and so Christian husbands don't need to become simps in order to love their wives. But wives have needs that men do not and are blessed by love meeting those needs. In what ways, Chris? Very simple ways. Many of these you've all thought of before. Open a door. Take heavy things from her when she comes home from the store. Do the man work around the house. Make sure that your children respect her. Say that you love her while looking her in the eyes and tell her she's beautiful and call to mind the manifold ways that she blesses your household and consider doing those things in public too. Be joyful around her. Be quick to forgive her. Husbands, pray for her. Give her time away from the busyness. Yes, a mother's night out is not an inappropriate thing to consider. Or time that she can go and read by herself. Or to get together with some of the sisters at church. Or maybe just to go and take a shower. Right? Surprised the ladies didn't amen that one. Alright? Men, above all, fight the dragon for her. Fight the dragon for her. Satan should have no place in your home and he should not get close to your wife. It is your job to fight him. It is your job to beat him back. It is your job to keep him away from your children. Fight the dragon, men. For those of you who tend towards being a self-willed man in your own home, love your wife. Love your wife. Honor her by loving her. Well, we'll, conclu we'll conclude today's message looking at God's judicial punishment for bad leadership in the home. I told you that Peter gave... Two persuasions, one positive and one negative. Here's the negative argument that he gives. If men do not treat their wives as they should, they will be judged by God in that their prayers will be, Peter says, hindered. He is not specific about what this looks like, but let me give you three considerations, three ways he might be applying this. Does God refuse to answer the prayers of a husband who mistreats his wife? I would say definitely, absolutely, and that's likely the primary meaning here. But in what other ways could his prayers be hindered? Would a husband's hardness of heart 
also keep him from praying for his wife? Absolutely. Yes, it could. Will conflict in their marriage disrupt the normal flow of his interceding for his family? I can't imagine how it would do otherwise, right? A husband's prayers will be hindered. And whatever way this lands, it ought to land, brothers, on us with severity. What if God did not hear your prayers, brothers? What if God did not hear your prayers? In the 2001 movie Black Hawk Down, the events of an invasion into Somalia in 1993 are recorded on screen where there's 160 elite American soldiers who find themselves pinned down by some heavily armed Somali soldiers. Now I want you to imagine, brothers, for just a minute that you're a part of that prestigious team of men. And your helicopter is shot down in the middle of Mogadishu, a city full of enemies, and all you have is your gun. And then, to illustrate my point, your gun mysteriously vanishes out of thin air. How do you feel all of a sudden? A little helpless. That's the way when we read God's judicial punishment for us as not hearing our prayers, it ought to feel like that. I am surrounded by a world that hates me and hates my family and hates my wife and my children. And now, wait, God won't hear me? That ought to land heavy on us. And I'm afraid that for many men it doesn't. Let me ask you a question, brothers. If God didn't answer your prayers, I know this is going to sound harsh, but would it even matter? Would it matter if God didn't hear your prayers? It, let me ask you this. If, if God didn't hear your prayers from just this last week, men, would the world be any different? Let me ask it a positive way. If God were to answer every prayer of yours from this last week, how would your life, your home, your wife, your kids, and your community be any different? Both of these questions point to the larger question which I'm asking. Do you even pray? Do you even pray? Instead of Peter's threat landing with any weight, many men read this passage and it's not convicting at all. So I still get to go out with the guys? Still get to have a beer in the evening while I watch TV? Still got my job? Still making good money? I don't really need prayer. I'm good. Brothers, I've got to ask you a question. Do you rightly value prayer? This threat, if it lands on you like somebody trying to mug you, but all they're asking for is the pennies in your pocket, that's not the way this should land on us. This ought to have real weight in our lives. Prayer is a lifeline to the Father for you. It is one of the greatest prizes that Jesus won for us, access to the Father. It is your main weapon against Satan and his advances on your family and church and community and world. Or is it? If it's not, then you're the proverbial sitting duck. Your pride may make you comfortable now, but what you see in this world and what you have access to currently, it's not what you should be concerned about. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. J.C. Ryle, to underscore this, says that prayer is one great secret of spiritual prosperity. When there is much private communion with God, your soul will grow like the grass after the rain. When there is little, all will be a standstill. You will barely keep your soul alive. Show me a growing Christian, a going forward Christian, a strong Christian, and sure am I, he is one that tells Jesus everything. Passages like 1 Peter 3, 7 should recalibrate our minds to the importance for prayer. And secondly, God's judicial punishment, brothers, is for your good. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, He flogs every son whom He receives. What kind of father would grant his child's request, request while that child has broken fellowship with others in his own home? Let's say that I come home to a bad report. Let's say that Tammy tells me that she's had a hard day and one of the children in particular has been cruel. And while she's explaining to me what's going on, that child comes up and starts pulling on my pant legs and saying, Daddy, can I have... Now, if I stop my wife and turn to the child and say, Yes, whatever you wish, that's probably not the best kind of parenting. Now, here's a moment where the world, and I would say the worldly church, is trying to persuade us that that's the right thing to do. No, Chris, God is the God of grace. God gives. You should turn to the child and, and maybe even spank yourself in front of the child and tell him, see, I took the punishment for you, and, and I'm here, here's ice cream, right? That is horrible parenting. In Christ, God is, it says here in Hebrews 12, flogging us. He flogs the children he receives. I love you. Come get your spanking, okay? This is proof of our sonship. We can't treat our children that way, and God certainly does not treat us that way. Why would God not discipline a man who is treating his wife poorly? To paraphr uh, paraphrase, my children and I were going through the Lord of the Rings series, and uh, Treebeard from Lord of the Rings says that, and I'll paraphrase, a Christian should know better. God's discipline of us is a sign of our sonship. It is a good thing. But what's the point of prolonging it, brothers? What's the point of prolonging the discipline? After he's done, should we turn back to the same foolish ways? Proverbs says it's like a dog going back to vomit. A fool returns to his folly. It's not worth it. Let me close with this. Martin Luther once said, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Jeremy Mefford at prayer on Wednesday night said it. I, I thought about this all week long. We don't serve a tight-fisted God. God's not up there like, okay, you got to break through because I'm not letting go. Pry my fingers open. God's hands are open and He is willing to answer our prayers. The New Testament is replete with examples of this. Do you want to get into heaven and see Christ with sinless eyes? And only then lay hold of the reality, which he's already taught us in his word, that he really is as generous as he says he is. You don't want to wait. I know this passage is about godly treatment of your wife, and I no way want to undermine that. 
by just talking for a few minutes about the value of prayer. But a right view of prayer, brothers, will help you esteem your wife highly. That's why Peter uses this argument. When I was a kid, I would do anything for access and time for video games. Anything. Nothing could stand in the way of game time. Grades, chores, yard work, you name it. I would do anything for it. By the time I graduated from high school, I did a rough estimate this week that I've accumulated 190 24-hour periods of video game playing. It's 190 days, a little over a half a year. Close to, yeah, a little over a half a year. It's about how much game time I've had. And what do I have to show for it? Nothing. And I'm not saying it's wrong to play video games. Hear me on that. But what could God grant from just 10 minutes of prayer and communion with Him? What could He grant? Anything. We could see the end of abortion from 10 minutes of prayer. We could see a church building granted to us from 10 minutes of prayer. We could see children in this church saved from 10 minutes of prayer. We could see miracles happen. People get healed from 10 minutes of prayer. Brothers, you don't want to lose this. You don't want your prayers to be hindered because of your mistreatment of your wife. Our wives have a huge uphill battle ahead of them. Everything that they are hearing and seeing in the world about femininity is in direct opposition to the Word of God. They need to be led well, but they need to be led well by men who fear God and love His Word, who understand a woman's comparative weakness in frame and constitution. They need to be led by men who see these weaknesses and treat them appropriately as those who will inherit alongside us the kingdom of God and all its rewards, who not only honor them but are constantly learning how to honor them more who value their relationship with the Father and communion with the Father so highly that it motivates them to treat His daughters with the greatest level of respect. I'll end today with a quote from C.S. Lewis on marriage and loving God, which essentially is the answer to this quandary. How do I love my wife well? Love God well. Love God well. Fear Him. Read His Word. Seek Him in prayer. C.S. Lewis said this, To love my wife as I should, I must worship God as the creator. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I do not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. Brothers, if you hear any exhortation today, don't hear a laundry list of you got to go home and do X, Y, or Z. Yes, I want you to talk about that at lunch if you're able, but hear this. You want to love your wife well, love God well. Pursue Christ. Seek Him. Pray to Him. Memorize His words. Obey His commandments. God grant us mercy as we try and love our spouses well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We know that your word gives us high calling. But nothing in your word that we are called to is anything beyond an easy yoke and a light burden. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we've been through 1 Peter and heard already, we can walk in righteousness. 
you have given us the third member of the Trinity to help us walk in righteousness and in the fear of you. You can help the men of this church love their wives well. And maybe, just maybe, that means the first thing they need to do today is repent to their wives for their mistreatment and lack of love for them. I pray that you'd give men the courage to do that. Not to give excuses, but to just flat out tell their wives, I have treated you wrong and I am sorry. I have not led you well. I don't learn you well. I don't love you well, but I want to. Please forgive me. Lord, maybe men in this church need to repent to you. Lord, I don't value you like I should. I don't value your word. I don't value prayer. Please forgive me. Lord, your word testifies to us again and again and again that you oppose proud people, but you give grace to humble people. Please offer us the grace that we so desperately need from the throne of heaven today and be with us now as we prepare for this meal. May our conversation be gracious and seasoned with salt and edifying and encouraging. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.